Hello everyone, my name is Sebastian Couture. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. And welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. Today is June 21st, 2014, and thanks so much for joining us on episode 25. Uh, so today our guest is Mike Hearn, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with. He's one of the first Bitcoin users and the developer of Bitcoin J. Bitcoin J is a Bitcoin Java, so a library that's used by a number of popular Bitcoin wallets, such as the Android wallet by Andreas Schopak, Multibit, and uh, Hive. Until recently, he was working at Google, and now he's working full-time on Bitcoin and Bitcoin projects, including uh, the Lighthouse, which is a crowdfunding platform. And we're really excited about having him on today to talk about Lighthouse, Bitcoin J, and uh, kind of Bitcoin development in general. So, hey, Mike. Hey. We'd also like to just briefly let you guys know about Coin Summit. Uh, last time we kind of put in a little interview that Seb did with Palmier. Uh, so we want to kind of mention again that Coin Summit is coming up in July 10th and 11th. Uh, we'll be there. So if, if you'll be there too, or if you want to go there, you know, get your tickets, uh, you can do that at coinsum.it. And I'm sure it will be a great conference. So uh, I guess let's get started. So, Mike, um, I wanted to kind of ask you just uh, before we get started and talk about the different topics that uh, we've got to cover. What's uh, what you, what's taking up most of your time right now? What what are you working on, uh, say, like full time at the moment? Um, I'm spending about half my time working on uh, Bitcoin J and maintaining that. You know, um, reviewing work that's being submitted, improvements, things like that, and in particular HD wallets and. Uh, the other half of my time is being spent on uh, my company, uh, on Lighthouse, um, doing some consulting work, things like that. But mostly it's split 50-50 between general Bitcoin development, which I've always done, and this new crowdfunding platform that I'm working on. Well, perhaps we can uh, start uh, with the first topic, right with this Lighthouse, which is a, a topic I, I find the crowdfunding thing very interesting also because I'm originally an economist and uh, I've... For a long time, you know, I saw these uh, crowdfunding things coming up and it didn't really make sense to me why this was such a huge deal. And I think I'm slowly kind of starting to come around that I, I do think this is really important. And, you know, we've we've been talking with uh, Adam Levine often about this uh, LTB coin. We've had uh, Joel Dietz on last time uh, to talk about Swarm. And I know in the Amsterdam conference, you were talking about Lighthouse. Unfortunately, we both missed that talk. Uh, we read your blog post on it and, and we really are excited to talk with you today about Lighthouse. So perhaps can you give people an introduction about what Lighthouse is? Yeah, sure. So Lighthouse is a way of um, building assurance contracts, which are this, this financial construct that's been popularized by sites like Kickstarter. So this is where people pledge money to fund the construction or the, the creation of something that everyone would benefit from. Um, and then the cost for it is estimated and uh, people pledge, but they only end up paying if enough other people pledge to reach the goal. Um, the original, the, I mean, although this has sort of been popularized recently, uh, this, this, this idea has been around a long time. And the goal was that, uh, you know, it should be, these are a way of funding the creation of public goods where a public good is defined as something that once it's been created, it costs money to create, but once it's been created, you can't stop people from benefiting from it. You can't charge them money to, for, for benefiting from it. Um, you know, in, in traditional economics, public goods are things like clean air, 
um, you know, uh, public roads, uh, and indeed lighthouses, which is where the, uh, the project gets its name. So I talked about um, how Bitcoin protocol supports this back in 2012, and I gave it as an example of things we could do in future using the features that Satoshi put into the protocol but that no one was using because we lacked good user interfaces for it. And Lighthouse is my attempt to, to fix that, to build a good user interface for the uh, construction of these projects. So correct me if I'm wrong, am I correct in assuming that Lighthouse is essentially uh, a wallet which uh, implements assurance contracts as it is defined in Bitcoin? Yeah, so Lighthouse is a specialized wallet. So you can send money into it, you can withdraw money out of it, and it makes transactions on the blockchain. It's an SPV wallet. It's a, it's a lightweight wallet that talks directly to the Bitcoin network and uses the blockchain. Um, but it doesn't have features that you would associate with a traditional wallet, like you know a history view so you can see your transactions or a, a contact list, for example. Um, it, it has the very base features that you would need in a wallet, but the idea is you put money in and then the bulk of the app is dedicated to allowing you to you know, do things with that money once you put it into Lighthouse. Okay. Now, I'm curious if these features exist in Bitcoin and they are interesting and promising in terms of what we can do and you know, where we can take this new technology. I'm, I'm curious as to why none of the other wallets and particularly the, the core uh, wallet doesn't have uh, these assurance contracts built in? Well, it's not clear to me that you want this to be integrated into a general purpose wallet. It's a very specialized sort of thing. Uh, most people aren't going to take part in these kind of contracts. Um, and if you look at the user interface, um, there's actually I'm actually in the process of redesigning the user interface at the moment. So what you see on the blog post I made is not the final UI by any means. But um, you know the, the bulk of the screen is taken up with management of these contracts. The bulk of the user interface is creating them, allowing you to gather pledges, to create pledges, to revoke your pledge. Um, oh yeah, something I didn't mention is if you pledge money and then you know you decide you want that money back before the contract reached its goal, then you can just take the money back. It's it's not a commitment that you're you're forced into. Um, and all of those features, you know, they all require planning and user interface design. They require protocol design. It's actually a, a large amount of work. Like even though the core Bitcoin protocol has the core feature that's needed, everything else layered on top uh, takes a lot of work. And wallet providers are all busy with more basic features. So perhaps before we can get into the, you know, the economics applications of this, which I think is the really interesting part, uh, can we talk? very briefly about how this works on a technical level. So I, I read the, you know, on assurance contracts, I read Ariana Simpson's post, um, and you know, there's some, I think on the Bitcoin wiki, but perhaps you can run us through briefly about, you know, how these transactions are created. Yeah, sure. So a red Bitcoin transaction has a slightly funny structure, right? You would imagine, um, if you didn't know anything about its design, you'd imagine that a Bitcoin transaction looks a little bit like a bank transaction where it identifies an account to take money from an account to debit money to, and then you know the amount of money that's being moved. Um, that's not actually how it works internally. What actually happens is the transaction has a list of what we call inputs and outputs. And the, the inputs effectively identify payments that were made to you. And the outputs um, identify payments you're creating to someone, right? So uh, the, the inputs of the transaction contain the, the, the digital signatures and the proof that you can claim those payments, 
And then the outputs redistribute that money into a different set of conditions, so different ownership, for example. But nothing really stops you from creating a transaction that just pays yourself, for example. That's, that's, you can do that. That's no problem. Um, now, the way um, Bitcoin works is, you know, if you have a transaction with, say, three, uh, three inputs, then you have three signatures, um, one for each input normally. And each one of those digital signatures, um, obviously, just like a real signature, you're signing some kind of document, right? It's, it's not just an abstract signature floating in space. It's actually a, a signature that covers some document. And what you're covering is the transaction itself. Um, so when you're signing, you, um, you sign a transaction in such a way that if that transaction were to be changed, you know, like, for example, by a, a network node that is relaying your transaction for you, um, the signature would break. Now, Satoshi, he thought ahead um, quite impressively, I must say. He, he allowed you to create signatures that only cover parts of the transaction, not the whole thing, if you want to. It's not the default behavior. If you want to, you can create a transaction which it is possible to modify, and the signature will still be valid. So the way Lighthouse works is um, it creates a, an invalid Bitcoin transaction that by itself breaks the rules of the system. It, it has an input that connects to some of your money and claims it with a, with a signature. And it has an output, which is a payment to the, the, person, the fundraiser, the person who's raising the money. But the amount of money you're putting in is much less than the amount of money you're trying to send to the, the project creator, um, which isn't allowed. Right? If that was allowed, anyone could just invent money out of thin air. So the Bitcoin network won't accept that transaction by itself. It will be ignored. But now, if the um, project creator gathers these kinds of partially signed invalid transactions, what they can do is merge them together because they've been signed in a special way. And by merging together enough of those transactions, you can effectively add enough inputs to meet the goal and eventually create a valid transaction the network will accept. So that's, that's how it works. You submit these invalid transactions and when the, when the project creator has enough, he combines them together and broadcasts them onto the Bitcoin network where it becomes like a regular payment. Yeah, I mean, this is brilliant. I wasn't even aware that it's possible to, you know, partially sign a transaction in a way that you can then put them together, you know, to get the sort of required output. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, yeah, it's very interesting. And I guess very cool how you can essentially replicate something like what uh, Kickstarter does in such an elegant way. Yeah. It's not an exact good for what Kickstarter allows because Kickstarter allows you to raise more money than your goal. Um, and, you know, sometimes you find the projects, you know, they, they said, well, well, we'll use, we need at least $50,000 and any more money that we raise, we will spend on doing something even more awesome, right? Uh, but with Bitcoin, you, you can't do that because, um, yeah, it has to be exact. It has to be exact. Yeah. If any additional money were to be put in, it would end up being going to minus fees actually because of how the protocol is designed. I was I was actually thinking about that. So if you let's say I mean because you can't control that, right? People will send in different amounts, and then let's say you wanted to have a hundred bitcoins, but now it's a hundred and seven. Uh, would that actually mean that you'll have to throw out some transactions and perhaps make your own contribution to get it to exactly a hundred? Uh, it depends how you uh, organize things. Right? Yes, you could do that. You could um, if you if you get pledges that don't quite line up, you could throw some out and, and you know, make it a difference yourself. But part of the infrastructure that Lighthouse provides or is in the process of providing um, 
is, you know, for example, I've written a server that gathers pledges and it will tell you how much money has been raised. So then, you know, the software, it won't let you accidentally pledge more than, than is allowed. Um, you can use Lighthouse in other ways uh, where the, the, there's no server involved at all, completely decentralized, and people are just sending files around. And in that mode, nothing stops anyone from just, you know, creating pledges that don't, that don't pack correctly and end up going under, you know, undershooting or overshooting. Um, but you can always just arrange out of band for people not to do that, where you say, hey, everyone, you know, please pledge, um, you know, one Bitcoin each or some multiple of one Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, don't, don't just pick a random number and put that in, please. You know, I will ignore pledges that don't follow these rules. And then, you know, you just organize with people who are interested in supporting your project. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we, we talked about, you know, Swarm, for example, last time. And, and their idea, I guess, is that uh, essentially projects are selling coins. And then those coins hopefully will have a value if the project is successful. But in your case, this is purely um, a donation-based funding of public goods. Is, is that correct? Well, I wouldn't phrase it as being a donation. Um, the, the reason, like, if you, if you look at the economics textbooks and so on, right, the, the way the assurance contracts are used are the people who are expected to put money in are people who will benefit from the outcome. The classical example is the sailors who would you know, like to see the light from the lighthouse. They all put money in. Right. It's not a donation exactly. They, they understand they will get something useful out of it. This construct is designed to resolve the deadlock that can occur when there's no way to like charge a, a small recurring fee for something. So I wouldn't um, expect this use for donations exactly. But you can imagine lots of different use cases. Uh, for example, let's go back to the question of packing the, the, the pledges. Right, One thing that um, Lighthouse could be used for, because it's, it's just an app, there's there's really no setup overhead at all. Is you know you could email, you could create a project in Lighthouse, drag it to your Gmail Compose window because the, the way the app works, you can drag these projects and these pledges in and out of the window. You just drop it onto an email and then send it to say fifty of your friends, and you say, hey, I'm I'm going to organize a, a house party, right? And there'll be there'll be beer and there'll be games and, and stuff. Um, but I need at least twenty people to come for it to be worth it, and you know to buy all the stuff. I need at least you know ten bucks each, right? So I need tw at least twenty people contribute ten bucks, otherwise it won't go ahead. This is exactly the kind of this is an assurance contract kind of thing, right? Like everyone will benefit if the party goes ahead, and so people can just reply to your email and attach the pledge they made with the app, and then when you have enough replies the party is organized but you know you probably don't want to like issue tickets and things right like once it's going ahead the people who chipped in the 10 bucks they're happy so why bother you know trying to prevent other people from coming everyone would benefit from a party that's bigger so this is the kind of thing where you know you could use this financial construct and maybe you wouldn't really have ever imagined doing it that way because of the limitations of existing platforms but this doesn't really address the issue of uh, free riders, no? Because you still have the incentive uh, that, you know, you'd be the person not paying if there's 20 other people paying the $10. Yeah, right. I mean, it's inherent in the nature of a public good that, you know, once it's been created, there will be people who benefit from it for free. Um, you know, the question is, if not, if less than 20 people have chipped in, Right. How much do you care about it happening versus not happening? Maybe you don't care about this party at all, so you don't put any money in. But maybe you, 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 know, you would actually like to see it go ahead. 
um, but you don't want to be the sucker who pays for all of it. So in that case, you can make a pledge. Um, and you, you just accept, yeah, that uh, in some cases, um, you know, other people will benefit and they won't have paid, right? It's inherent. It's, it's happening in things like Kickstarter projects as well. The same thing when you when you support your favorite band, you buy their album, you understand that, you know, some people will just pirate it. They will, they will benefit for free. Um, but, you know, you, you buy the album because you want to support your favorite band. Now, I have a question. Can you kind of walk us through how uh, you create an insurance contract with Lighthouse and how you would uh, essentially make it known to others. Uh, so you say you had two modes, you have the server mode and, and the, and the self-hosted uh, mode, um, or the standalone rather. So can you kind of just walk us through uh, yeah, sure. the, the experience of creating a contract? Yeah, sure. So I, it's still in flux a little bit, right? Because I'm actually redesigning the UI a little bit. But most of it is already, it's, it's, uh, already designed and, and sorted out. So as you mentioned, there's two modes. Um, there's serverless mode and there's server-assisted mode is what I call them. And this is partly because, you know, Lighthouse, it, it's, it's about a bunch of things. So one is about allowing people to make these contracts and, and solving the, that problem. Um, but it's also about showing people how I, how I think decentralized infrastructure can be built and, and you know, demonstrating the way I prefer to build decentralized applications. And so Lighthouse is like a desktop app. You download it and you run it. Um, it doesn't have any dependencies on on any service, or it shouldn't do in the long run. So it's um, just so it's like a, an HTML five app, or no, no, it's no. actually not. It's just a regular desktop app that runs on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Right? Okay, and um, that's that's you know how it can connect directly to the peer to peer network and process the blockchain directly, and so on. So there's there's no dependency, or there in the in the ideal world, there's no dependency on anything I'm running. Um, and then you have a choice. You can, you can create an, a contract in the app, which allows you to do very simple things like typing in a title for it, a description, saying how much money you want to raise, saying um, which uh, addresses you, know, you want the money to pay to, things like that. And then what it gives you is a, a, an icon, um, which you can then drag to, um, in serverless mode, and it's, just, it's actually a file drag it right out of that window into a directory, for example, or into Dropbox or Google Drive or to an email or to a chat window or to, you know, um, some other websites that you upload the file to, a web forum, for example. Anywhere you can put a file um, or a link to a file, uh, this project can go. And then it's up to you and it's entirely up to you to get that project out there for, for people to, you know, to help people discover that. Lighthouse by itself is not a complete replacement for everything Kickstarter does. It only handles moving money. So it's, it doesn't have... It's not a platform. Right. It's not a... Well, it's a platform, but it's, not, it's only a platform for the, the handling of the money. It doesn't provide discovery, for example. It, it's not like a single place where everyone... Where people just say, I, I have some money and I want to do something cool with it, but I don't know what. Um, the idea is that people can build such platforms um, on top of Lighthouse, but the Lighthouse app itself is not such a platform. So basically, serverless mode, you're just moving files around, right? So someone gets hold of this file, they, they, they click a link in a web forum or whatever, they, they open it in the app or they drag it into the app, it's, it works both ways. And then they can use it like a regular wallet. They can send money from their phone or from their, uh, you know, their regular wallet, from Hive, from Multibit, whatever. Um, they can make pledges. Of course, they can take the pledges back after a while if they don't think the project is really going to make it. And um, when once they make a pledge, again, what they get back is an icon, 
which they can then, you know, again, drag out of the app and get it back to the project creator. So this is, um, this is a little bit like sort of moving documents around with, you know, office or whatever. It, it's, it works. You don't need any infrastructure. You're effectively using the infrastructure that already exists, but maybe it's not as convenient as you would want, especially not when the number of people taking part gets high. The advantage of this is like, if you already have a system, um, that is managing access control and identity and so on, then you can just reuse that. Like, you know, if there's some reason why inside a company or inside a collection of companies, you would want to have one of these contracts, then, you know, you can use your private uh, workspaces and so on, right? There's, there's no dependency on any other service. Um, on the other hand, if you do want to do a larger scale crowdfunding, you know, you've made a little website or you, you've got a, you, you want to build one of these platforms like Kickstarter for discovery, then Lighthouse also has a server that just, just sits there. And in this case, um, you know, you can actually, uh, basically just tell Lighthouse, you know, open up this server and show me the projects it has. You can pledge. And then when you click pledge, it just uploads directly to the server. So there's no, there's no moving the files around or dragging and dropping when used in that mode. But obviously someone has to run that server. So if I understand correctly, then if you're, if you're on standalone mode and so I, I created a, 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 a cause and, uh, an insurance contract. I send that file, let's say in the example of the party, I send that file to all my friends. They have to have the Lighthouse app on their computer. They open the file with the Lighthouse app. They pledge money to it. And then they have to export that file again and then send it back to me in order for for the pledges to go through. Right, because you don't have any, any system in place that collects files. Right? Now, mm. to export this file, you know, like I said, you can actually, all you have to do is... Uh, drag the icon onto your Gmail reply window. That will work. So it's not okay. a particularly complicated uh, operation. But yes, you, you, ha- you do have to take some explicit action to get it back to the user. Right. And then as the host, uh, I have to get those files back into my Lighthouse app. And then altogether, they will construct the, they will sign the transactions. So actually the way it works is um, when you create a project, you give Lighthouse a directory somewhere, a folder somewhere on your computer. And then it watches this folder for pledges. So, for example, what you can also do if you don't want to use email is you can create uh, you know, uh, a shared directory, a shared uh, folder on Google Drive Dropbox or Dropbox. Or, exactly. Yeah, right? And if you've got okay. the app installed, you just save the project there. And then when people, you know, when people create a pledge, they just drop it back onto the web app, uh, the, the Dropbox web page, right, in the web browser uploads it and it gets synced down to your computer. And then you just, as long, you just have Lighthouse in the background and you can see the pledges like stack up, right? There's, there's no requirement that you do anything just as the files appear in the shared directory then uh, the pledges stack up and eventually you can claim the contract and is there are there any plans to make a mobile apps as well as desktop um well i've thought about it but um my gut sense is that you know for the early use cases it's a somewhat serious step to uh, make a pledge and make a contract so um probably a desktop computer is appropriate but if mm-hmm. we did if we do want to move into things like yeah using it to organize parties or you know small things like, like these micro contracts right if, if people do want to do that kind of thing then a mobile app would make a lot of sense sure and in that case like, it probably would be somewhat integrated with you know an android wallet or something like that because okay. moving files around and dragging and dropping on mobile platforms doesn't work so you need to you need to design the user interface in some other way. Right. And so I, I suppose it would then have to be built on top of the server-assisted mode. Well, yeah, probably. I mean, you can do things with, with mobile phones that, you know, you can't do with, with desktops so easily or laptops. So um, 
you know, you could have the files be made available to the people in the room via Wi-Fi direct or whatever, right? There's, there's other interesting things you can do there, especially if you have physical proximity. Um, but, uh, yeah, probably in the mobile use case, you know, some method of, of sharing files and moving files around would have to be adopted. And most likely, given the way these platforms work, that would be some Apple or Google service. Yeah. So it's possible, of course, in this case, to revoke your contribution, right? By essentially uh, double spending it before mm-hmm. that threshold is, is reached. Now, uh, I understand why this is technically, you know, that's just how it works, the way this is constructed. Do you think this is a good thing or it's just a thing that, you know, is, is a consequence of how insurance contracts work in Bitcoin? Well, I mean, it's, um, it's fundamental to the definition of an insurance contract, right? The, the whole point of a contract like this is that you, you're pledging that you will give money. That's why it's called a pledge. But if not enough other people pledge, you don't lose that money. It's still your money. You could spend it on something else if you wanted to. Otherwise, you're just giving the guy the money. But here you can, but the issue here is, right, Mm -hmm. uh, you can take your money back even if it went over. If you, I mean, if you do it before it reaches it, I mean. Right. So once once enough pledges have been gathered that, you know, the contract is claimable, um, once, you know, at that point, the guy, all the guy has to do is click the button and, and the money becomes his. Um, but you can revoke your pledge before they do that, sure, if you don't want to take part anymore. So, because I was thinking, like, uh, here would be a possible attack scenario, right? So, let's say I I want to fund the projects and I want to raise uh, a thousand bitcoins. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody doesn't like my project, mm-hmm. and you know, I say, let's say I, I put in a 30-day window. If somebody doesn't like my project, you know, they could put in uh, 500 bitcoins, perhaps from different accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, so it would look like uh, 200 different people. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe as it approaches 80, 90%, you start revoking payments, right? And you start, you know, and then the project, like, uh, as a potentially... You mean, like, just to, just to mess with them psychologically? Yeah, I mean, right then, it, it, you know, like, you look 25 days in, and from, like, maybe 80%, it goes down to 30%, you know, gradually, because people... I, I think this would be... Uh, dramatically well i mean you, you know, first of all yeah I mean, you, you know it's in, like i said it's inherent in the arrangement that you can say you will pay and then you actually don't um you know lighthouse prevents things getting jammed where people claim they will pay and then you try and collect the money and you can't collect it right you don't have to do any manual work to collect this money now if if you're in a position where someone really hates you and they just want to like just mess with you by pretending you've got the money when really you haven't um well firstly that's kind of risky for them right because if someone did make a big contribution at the last yeah, minute, too then, fast. then they yeah, can still yeah. take their money. So it's a potentially expensive attack for them. But also, um, you know, like I said, Lighthouse is, is solving one very specific problem and it tries to solve that problem well. But you, nothing stops you from having a platform on top that, you know, has ID verification or, you know, verifies that people really are different people in some ways and watches out for you know, people engaging in abuse of some kind, you, you, you could effectively go and find some additional service on top of it, you know, in the case where that was an issue for your project, which I would hope mostly it isn't. Could you maybe talk about some of these services that could emerge from, from uh, Lighthouse? Sure. So actually, that's a good uh, segue into, um, you know, my company. So I've created, I left Google and I created this company, uh, Venuris, and the goal of this company is to fund decentralized infrastructure which is a wider 
a wider remit than just Bitcoin. Well, actually, the goal of the company is just to earn me a living <laughs> when, when it boils down to it. And I would like to do that by building decentralized infrastructure. So one of the things that um, I'm developing uh, um, in and around the time I have when I'm not doing these other tasks is uh, Venumerous will be one of these platforms. It will be a platform where I post projects and uh, maybe I post projects on the behalf of other people, which are about upgrades to Bitcoin. So if you're interested in, if you have some Bitcoins and you're interested in investing in the Bitcoin system itself, you can go to venumerous.com and you'll be able to find, um, you know, projects where there are like new features for wallets, privacy upgrades, security upgrades, scalability upgrades, decentralization upgrades. Um, you know, cool new apps, all kinds of projects you can pledge towards. And then this will be effectively how uh, I decide what to spend my time on. Right? I'll look at what the, uh, what the market is interested in effectively. And Venumerous.com will be one of these specialized crowdfunding platforms, which brings people together who have a very specific niche interest, which is the development of decentralized digital infrastructure. So basically you're funding feature requests and and bug yes, reports yeah so all of this got bug fixes. all of this got started because you know i'm i'm i've been very worried for a long time that bitcoin the core bitcoin system is radically underfunded uh, underdeveloped compared to where it needs to be so a ton of work is being done in the, in the bitcoin space around startups they're developing services this is great but the core system itself still has you know glaring problems that we've known about for years um, and they don't get fixed because basically the only people who are working on Bitcoin core at this point are paid by the foundation and occasional volunteers. You know, volunteers who contribute, you know, fixes here and there for small things, but the big upgrades of protocol needs are not getting done. And, you know, a part of this is obvious, right? Bitcoin itself is a public good. Um, if you upgrade the, the core infrastructure, if you design a new protocol, you can't really stop anyone from using that. It's not like a, a Bitcoin ATM or an exchange or a wallet provider where you can charge people for access to it. The core system is open to everyone. So this is a public good and, and way to fund public goods is assurance contracts. And what better way to fund Bitcoin development itself than with Bitcoin assurance contracts? Now, that's interesting. Like, you, So you say that there's, I mean, obviously, there's a lot more uh, in, uh, in investment and time being spent building on these other things or these services and Bitcoin 2.0, mm -hmm. Ethereum, you know, all this stuff. And and in the end, not a whole lot of time and effort and, uh, and resources being allocated or being spent on the Bitcoin protocol itself. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that, you know, not more people are, uh, are aren't uh, investing uh, their time and resources in the Bitcoin protocol? Well, I think there are a bunch of reasons. Um, so one is obviously this money reason, right? How do you, how do you make money? How do you even pay for yourself if you're going to upgrade the Bitcoin protocol today? Yeah, I but I mean, there's lots of open source projects out there with lots of people contributing and not making any money. I mean, uh, well, that's... you know, you'd be surprised, right? Like the big projects like the Linux kernel and so on, actually most people are paid. Um, you know, he, volunteers still make up a really important role in the, in the open source world, of course, right? They're doing a lot of things. Um, there are volunteers contributing to Bitcoin J as well, for example. That's great. But, you know, you would, if you scratch the surface, you'll discover that a lot of people who look superficially like they're volunteers, they're actually doing the heavy lifting during work hours because their employer benefits from that software in some way, right? Sometimes they make it explicit and sometimes they don't. Now, in the Bitcoin world, um, basically, we solve this problem today, this funding issue, this public good issue, actually, through the Bitcoin Foundation. 
which is sort of one another way of solving the, the public good problem, right? You have like a charitable foundation and companies that want to benefit the core system, they, they all donate and there's kind of a social expectation that if you're a big company and you're you're building on top of Bitcoin that you will you will take part of the Bitcoin Foundation to help fund Gavin and, and Corey and, and Vladimir and these guys. Um, but the problem is, you know, I mean, um, progress in the core protocol has slowed down for a lot of reasons. Uh, funding is one, but the, the, there's a lot of problems within the, the, the core development community as well, which are social problems. Um, you know, my plan with Lighthouse and, and Venuris is only to tackle the funding issue, right? People should be able to quit their job and upgrade Bitcoin in some way and not have to work for the foundation. Uh, they should be able to do other things. So it seems to me like the, the best way this would have happened, and, and uh, this is kind of a theoretical point. It, I don't think it was possible at the time, but if, um, you know, Satoshi in the beginning had said, you know, from the transaction fees, uh, part of all the transaction fees go in this kind of bounty fund and then, you know, Bitcoin holders can use a proof of stake to vote on, you know, which projects should get funding. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Do you think that would that could have been at least theoretical if the means had been no, there at no, the time? I, a good no, way I don't. To... I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you look at this, the feature that Lighthouse has built on the Sikash, anyone can pay. There are not that many uses for it outside of assurance contracts. So I think maybe he did think about this. But to say, to put aside some fraction of transaction fees for some fund, the, you know, the obvious question then is who who decides who gets the money from that fund? And you say, well, maybe everyone can decide through proof of stake. Um, but the, the issue with... Um, with bounties and so on is uh, you know, they, they are first come first. So bounties have been tried a lot of times in Bitcoin development. People have often tried to incentivize development with bounties, but there are a couple of problems. One is that um, they often are too small. So, you know, you find people saying, oh, I've put like, there's a bounty of $500 and I want, you know, a complete upgrade of Bitcoin to some new thing and it'll take a year. And it's like, well, you're not going to get, you know, you'll get like a few hours of work out of a skilled guy for five hundred dollars, right? You're not going to get um, like a massive upgrade. So that's that's one problem. And the second problem is that, that it, it creates a race where the first person to you know technically meet the criteria of the bounty gets all the money, and anyone else who is a little slower but did a better job gets nothing. So this incentivizes people to cut corners as aggressively as possible and to produce something that's you know really atrocious in many cases or has you know. Yes, it's a program that does what the bounty requires, but it doesn't have a user interface. You know, it's only usable by geeks or whatever. Um, and so, bounties have largely been a failure. Assurance contracts resolve this problem because you know you can stand up and say, "I will, you know, I will solve problem X, and it will cost Y amount of money." Um, or you can even do what I'm hopefully intending to mostly do, which is actually already create the solution and then stand up and say, "This is what it, it cost me. This is what I'm going to charge. Like this is my price." Um, and then you know what you're going to get. There's no danger of you know someone nipping in early and you get a terrible product out because you're you're pledging towards a very specific outcome. Now I I don't know how you could integrate that with some kind of you know like who even decides what fraction of the fees get sent to developers. Developers, I think it's very hard. Yeah, uh, it seems like the your approach is economically though a bit. Uh, irrational though because in a sense if you developed something then you, you this is a sunk cost and you're probably not going to not want to release it well right so that's something i'm going to be exploring right? 
is it how easy is it to sit on my hands and, and not give stuff away for free? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, when I, when I came up with this idea and I decided I, I thought this was a solution, I looked around for other companies with this business model and couldn't find any. Um, yeah, I didn't spend like months looking, so maybe, maybe there are some companies out there, but it's not a common business model. Um, so this is an experiment just as much as Bitcoin is an experiment. Will it work? That's, that's the question. If it doesn't, I have backup plans. I have backup plans, my backup plans, you know, in, in other cases, I just won't do Bitcoin stuff anymore. Right? I'll just go work on some other unrelated piece of software. But I'm, ho- I'm hoping... Uh, well, don't I'm, do that. Well, I'm hoping don't do I don't that. have to do that, but we'll see. Right? Bitcoin is not guaranteed to be a success, and everyone involved in it must bear that in mind. Now, my plan is um, that on, this, on um, my company website, which is primarily going to be this kind of... <clears throat> you know, uh, platform for finding projects just like Kickstarter is, uh, that there will be an ability to pre-pledge. So people can say, this solves two problems. People can say, you know, I I agree to put $200 towards this, $500, but no actual money is moving. There's no credit cards, there's no Bitcoins, there's no Lighthouse app at this point. It's just just a promise, effectively. Um, And then the idea there is this acts as a hint about what people would be interested in funding right so the idea is that um it's it's just a promise right people could go back on that promise but the goal is that uh you know by by just taking a few basic precautions you know collecting email addresses and things like that should be able to get a rough feel for what people um are interested in funding and then also people have pledged uh, in in stable currencies so you know, if people pre-pledge to a certain project and then I go and write that project and say, okay, it's available now, then, um, you know, obviously once the contract is fixed in Bitcoins, then uh, you're kind of stuck with it, right, until the, the, until the project closes. Um, so at that point, you would hope that, you know, you could actually get most people who promised to actually pledge for real with real Bitcoins within the space of a week or two. So you're not too affected by volatility. Now, are you are you the only person that's going to be working on on these uh, sort of pledged upgrades, or are there other people uh, who will be joining you to be paid in, in effect for uh, upgrading the protocol? Well, a lot of people, right? So, a lot of people have expressed interest in this funding model, right? A lot of people are, are, who would like to work on Bitcoin full time, or they already are, but they don't really have a business model yet. They they've been talking to me and saying, "Hey, I would love to be able to use this app." Right? Let me know when it's ready. Now, to start with, it will just be me. Um, I want to see if I can actually make a living this way. Obviously, if I'm successful and there's a backlog of projects, you know, more people have pre-pledged, more people are pledging money to these projects than I can actually get through myself, then it would make total sense to open this up and, and allow other people to be taking part in this platform as well, right? Because there's plenty of work to do. That's that's not... <laughs> running out of work is not an issue. Um, the question is to what extent will the Bitcoin community step up and fund it? Because the companies have the funding, they've got the profit, they've got the venture capital, and they are they need Bitcoin to work well. So my plan is to mostly try and get these companies to pledge. And this resolves a problem that, you know, BitPay or Coinbase or, or uh, you know, whoever, none of these companies want to become the sucker who is always paying for the upgrades to Bitcoin and, and the other companies sort of get away scot-free, right? So it's a way of breaking the deadlock between Bitcoin startups as well as individual people. I guess there would be one issue. I mean, if, say, for instance, you're the only one who uh, ends up uh, w- well, working on these uh, protocol upgrades um, on uh, on this platform, 
that in effect we're kind of centralizing uh, the development of the Bitcoin protocol. Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, it's already centralized, right? Basically, the only, only yeah. people doing any heavy... But even more centralized. Right. Well, the only people doing any kind of heavy lifting on the protocol today are people paid by the Bitcoin Foundation. And when I say people, all I mean is Gavin, because actually there's only three people paid by the Foundation to work on Bitcoin code-wise. And of those, Vladimir and Cory both refuse to work on the protocol, partly because of these social issues that have come up, right? Um, basically, progress on the Bitcoin protocol is ground to a halt, complete, complete halt. So this is a crisis period for Bitcoin in that sense. So if I was to be working on it and, and I had a sustainable income stream, this could only decentralize things further, even if it's just me, right? Because now you've got the Bitcoin Foundation and the numerous. And especially if I'm working on things that people are pledging money towards and I'm kind of being pulled around by the market, right? I see. This, yeah. is, a, this is free market-driven development. It, it wouldn't be like... I say, this is the next project, you know, take it or leave it, right? I, I have lots of projects that I could do and which things get done will depend partly on where the money is. So this is a way that the regular Bitcoin community can also influence development hours as well. I'm hoping to create a marketplace where, you know, people who, who uh, can put money up can, can help direct uh, things within reason, right? Obviously, you don't want, mm. you don't want Bitcoin to be just controlled by, by rich people. There has to be some... There has to be some reason to it, but uh, they can certainly help fund it. I think that could also be a great way to just get more people involved in the development process. Because you know, I guess most people, even working on Bitcoin startups, etc., you don't really know too well what exactly the core developers are working on. So perhaps this would be a way to change that somewhat. Well, I mean, what these developers are working on is open and you know you can just go look at github or the mailing list the real problem we have now is that people at these startups they're, they're, they're sending me and gavin feedback saying they're not willing to take part because of these social problems that have accrued in the project um so that's obviously a, a concern right there, there could be people working on this stuff but the the environment has become so toxic they're not willing to um, and, and partly, you know, if you feel like you don't know what the core developers are doing, the brutal reality is that most of them do not much. Um, there's almost nothing happening actually on Bitcoin core development. Only Gavin is working on any major upgrades and he can only tackle one at a time. So last year, a lot of time was spent on, you know, payment protocol. I did a lot of work on that as well. A lot of time is spent on random mis things that crop up, like uh, you know, chain forks and uh, performance and uh, you know, transaction malleability stuff. But if you look at you know new features and, and other improvements, then only Gavin is doing that, so he's just one guy. So that's the problem I'm trying to help us. That, that is that is very worrying, though. I, I wasn't aware it was quite as bad. Yes, I'm afraid it is. Yeah, I mean, if you there's there's a sort of group of people who. I've never seen this in any other open source project, by the way. This notion of a core developer is something that's unique to Bitcoin as far as I know. Um, and I've been involved in open source projects for 15 years. So, um, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a newbie when it comes to open source. But, um, but yeah, no, it worries me too, right, that uh, the two of the three people, um, I've, I've talked to them about it, two of the three people paid by the foundation, they're not willing to think about protocol upgrades at all is, is that because they're just too busy like with bug fixes and sort of keeping things running or is there another reason for that um well you know there is a fair amount of work involved in just keeping things ticking over but no i mean the core problem is that basically any change to the protocol gets um 
for any proposed change uh, that's non-trivial tends to devolve into giant arguments. And historically, Bitcoin has had a consensus-based development approach. So proposals be changed and reasonable people would discuss them and some consensus would arise. And in recent times, that process has broken down completely such as now even quite simple changes can't get consensus anymore. So, and people see this and they see these giant flame wars effectively and they say, I don't want to, you know, it's not fun to work on this stuff. I don't want to go anywhere near that. You know, I'm not interested in doing work that then uh, gets rejected or ignored because, you know, this ever larger group of people, they all, they all wield veto power over changes. So there's a, there's a structural problem there. The chain of command has become less clear and, and less assertive, effectively, and, and it, the problem is that it makes it difficult to get things done. So that's the reason that a lot of this stuff is moving very slowly. Right? Improvements that have been talked about for years, no one even starts work on them now. And so you said Gavin is sort of the only one uh, working on upgrades uh, to the protocol. Uh, can you talk about some what those upgrades are? Yeah, so Gavin, um, last year, um, me and him tag teamed on uh, on the payment protocol, of course, which was rolled out. That started to roll out at the start of this year. Um, now he's working on floating fees, which I know you mentioned earlier. This is you know this is attempting to fix the problem that fees are pretty broken in Bitcoin. There's there's no fee market to speak of. It means that as Bitcoin gets more valuable in dollar terms, the the effective fee we're paying in dollar terms per transaction goes up for no real reason. Right? It's not like an average transaction actually got more expensive to process. It's, it's just because of the way the software works. So he's been working for a while now trying to fix that. Um, but, you know, like I said, he's just one guy and progress is slow and upgrade. A lot of these things are upgrades to the entire ecosystem, right? Everyone has to, has to opt in and upgrade to floating fees uh, for that to work. So it's a very difficult sort of uh, change. So uh, can you tell us how he's thinking about going about that? Well, so what he's been working on in recent times is changes to Bitcoin Core that will, it effectively watches the behavior of the, the network and uses data it records to estimate uh, what fees are paid to confirm in what amount of time. Uh, so I worked, I worked on this with him over Christmas as well. Um, we we uh, modified the algorithm, and the idea is that Bitcoin Core, the wallet, there you, you'll be able to specify. I want my transaction to confirm, uh, you know, within um, one block, within ten blocks. I don't care if I wait a hundred blocks. And um, the uh, the the outcome of this is that you know you'll when you send a payment in Bitcoin, you'll be able to actually uh, drag a slider from left to right, you know, from slow to fast or fast to slow, and the, the, the wallet apps will estimate the fees they have to pay in order to get confirmed within that time. This is the first this is the first part of like establishing a fee market where miners compete with each other um, on their their fee policies. But as a miner, you kind of have an incentive to just include include you know. Whatever transactions pay higher fee than your, you know, marginal cost yes. of, uh, or your cost of including the transaction. I actually asked Gavin about that, and because you know, I thought like, well, you know, the cost of including the transaction is basically going to be zero, and uh, he said it wasn't the case because of uh, because it makes your block bigger, and then it takes longer to propagate, so you have a higher risk of an orphan block. Uh, so that this would sort of define the lower bound of the fees. Um, 
which seems like a, a very strange way of determining the fees. It's not. I mean, so a lot of the thing to realize is a lot of these issues were flashed out um, in various forums, you know, as way back as 2010. Right? You're correct. The, uh, the establishment of a fee market should drive fees close to zero, not actually to zero, um, because, you know, there is some cost associated with including a transaction. Um, but uh, in theory, in a healthy mining market, you know, miners should, uh, should prefer to take the fees rather than leave money on the table. And this means that fees should drop to what it actually costs to include a Bitcoin transaction, ignoring without the, um, the cost of mining itself being considered, which for now is being funded by inflation effectively. Right? Um, this, is, <coughs> this might seem useless or, or reckless in some way, but it's actually um, by design. So transaction fees in Bitcoin it doesn't work as a way to fund mining, actually, which is how Satoshi originally envisioned it. And, and it doesn't work for exactly the reason you specified. Um, if miners are genuinely competing with each other and we don't have a cartel, then the fees should spiral downwards to the marginal cost of inclusion in the block. And so for now, we don't care because, you know, miners are getting 25 Bitcoins per block anyway, and in future, they'll still be getting money per block, uh, even if they include no transactions at all. Um, and in the long run, we need some other way of funding this. And uh, this resulted in huge flame wars a long time ago. I say a long time ago. It's not really a long time ago. 2010, 2011. Uh, no, sorry, 2011, 2012, I think, is when most of these debates happened. And um, people came up with all kinds of interesting solutions to this problem, <clears throat> the most annoying of which was, you know, hey, we should just limit Bitcoin so it can hardly process any transactions. And because it's so amazing, you know, people will... Will, will attach huge fees to their, their transactions just because they want to use Bitcoin. And this will, this artificial um, throttling of supply, of block space supply, will force fees to be as high as we need to protect the system. Um, this was not a very convincing argument. Um, for example, Peter Todd made this argument a lot. The problem being, of course, that you know we, we don't want a system that's kind of useless and only rich people can afford. <laughs> it's like, that's not really a very inspiring thing to work on. We want a system that is accessible to everyone, including poor people. So I proposed an alternative, which is, hey, guess what? Assurance contracts, right? You can actually, you wouldn't do it with Lighthouse because Lighthouse is a good app that's, that's designed for end users. But you could have a different kind of app that forms what I call network assurance contracts. And this is where people who benefit from hash power, people who benefit from difficult to construct blockchains, form... They, they form like rapid micro assurance contracts. So they, they can have a peer to peer network where they're actually forming transactions that spend all the money to fees and, um, which, uh, you know, effectively force people to chip in, um, and, and help pay for mining hash power because, because effectively mining is a public good, right? Because this, because miners have this incentive to include every transaction no matter what the fee, you can't really stop someone from getting their transaction right. So, exactly. Yeah. So this is, this, is, this is not hugely well thought out because this is a problem that will occur, you know, along the way in the future, we think. But uh, at least in theory, you know, we recognize mining as a public good. Maybe some kind of assurance contract contains a solution. You're still going to have the free rider problem in that case, though. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about that as well. And, and I agree, it's, it's, it's a very strange thing that, you know, in a sense you have the essentially all the bitcoin holders are paying for the security of network through the inflation now and that's going down and, and there seems to be no clear way uh 
you know, to solve this problem with the with the transaction fees. I mean, I think uh, you described it extremely well. It's it's very uh, the idea is interesting. I guess if you could sort of include this insurance contracts automatically in wallet software yeah and, and maybe it would be cheap enough yes yeah, sure so i mean you can imagine everything from you know payment processes like bitpay doing this so you know everything being integrated into wallets and everyone's wallets you know taking part through some big peer-to-peer network you can imagine lots of scenarios that's super interesting i've, I've never heard about that but yeah that's that's very interesting uh, idea i think Speaking of fees, you mentioned in, in one of the talks, you, uh, I forget which one it was, but um, when speaking about the payment protocol, that uh, the payment protocol should allow the uh, receiver to pay the fees. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, right. So, I mean, the, the funny thing about the way Bitcoin is designed, right, is senders pay fees, but it's the receiver who cares about double spending risk. So, you know, it became obvious while we were thinking about these questions around the economics of mining and so on. And I remember actually giving presentations um, to management inside Google back in 2011. And, you know, these are smart guys, right? So I, I gave a presentation to like, the head of Google research and he, he immediately like seized on this question of how does the economics of mining work? Does it work? You know, does it, does it turn into a race to the bottom where there's no one is mining because no one is paying for it? And, um, you know, these are very challenging questions. For example, how much mining does the blockchain really need at all? Um, I think it's we're, we're in this really terrible situation at the moment. Bitcoin has got itself into this really terrible situation where there's huge amounts of energy being put into mining, and yet the chain is extremely insecure because of you know ghash.io, because of mining pools, mining centralization. We've got this absurd scenario where people are building an entire data center farms just to mine bitcoins, and yet we are still insecure very insecure, right? The whole system could be overridden and people could double spend just one guy deciding it effectively at this point. Um, you know, Jeffrey Smith at ghash.io could double spend. But even if he didn't have the majority that he seems to have or close to it, you know, he could team up with another guy and then two guys could double spend. So it's, well, right now we, we've got too much mining and yet somehow we're still insecure. So this question of, you know, how much money does do the receivers of transactions want to spend in order to secure their transactions against double spending is a very complex uh, question. Right? Not everyone cares about double spending equally. But especially the people who don't care about double spending are the people sending people money because they know they're honest. Right? Or they, uh, they know they're malicious and they don't want uh, to attach any fee because they want to be able to double spend. So it's always the receiver that cares about fees. Um, and, you know, we need to fix this. So the payment pro- currently we, we scrape on by with everyone just attaching a kind of a, a hard-coded fee by convention but ultimately what we need is receivers to be able to say through the payment protocol i i think you know your double spending risk so i'm not going to accept this payment unless you attach a reasonably high fee or they could say the opposite you know you're a trusted valued customer i don't i don't care if this payment takes two weeks to confirm you know don't attach any fee at all for example um and then the payment protocol is the ideal way to communicate that. I see. Okay. Well, maybe uh, we should move on to uh, Bitcoin J. Um, so you uh, developed Bitcoin J in 2011? No, I started in 2010. No. Um, but it wasn't released until right. 2011. 
Okay. And so Bitcoin J is, is this like library, a Java library, which allows uh, you to create uh, an app essentially or a program and, 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 and interact with the blockchain. It's used by the Android wallet, by Andreas Schiltbach. It's used by Multibit, by Hive. Um, now, the, recently uh, it's been um, talked about that you want to include uh, uh, Tor in Bitcoin J where all all uh, traffic essentially moving in and out of a wallet would transact through Tor. Um, is that already implemented or is that in the process of being implemented? No, it's actually been merged into the, the master branch of Bitcoin J. So that's the version of the code that's been developed. It's not been released yet, but yes, it works. And, you know, I have an example Bitcoin wallet on my desktop that connects through Tor and it works fine. There are a couple of things we're going to need to do before that's usable by everyone. Um, one is that the, the Tor library we use um, is quite new and it seems to work pretty well, but it, we know it has a couple of bugs. Um, and, you know, if we know the bugs exist that can break it, we should probably fix them. <laughs> so uh, there's a bit of, there's a bit of uh, mature, maturing that needs to happen with that library that we're using for Tor. And the second one is um, it does slow down startup a little bit, or it can do. And, you know, not everyone cares about additional privacy or the, the additional security. So, um, you know, for example, if you're at home, uh, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to use Tor because you probably trust your cable company, for example, your home Wi-Fi is private to you. So, um, you know, we need to we need to figure out how to deal with that. Probably what we'll see in the next generation of that, uh, next sort of generation of wallets built on Bitcoin J, you know, the next versions of Hive, and the mobile wallets and so on, it's like a tick box, right, in the preferences to say, do you want additional privacy and security at a trade-off that the app will take longer to start up. And then we can get feedback and testing and maybe find a few more bugs from the people who are you know, willing to opt in. Um, with the eventual goal being that maybe all traffic should be routed this way by default, but you know, we need to, need to um, make sure it's not going to harm stability. First. So the, the idea of integrating Tor into Bitcoin J uh, was primarily to stop man-in-the-middle attacks, for instance, on a public Wi-Fi network or are there other risks? Uh... Well, there are, there are a couple of reasons. You know, one, one is this issue of, yeah, if your internet connection is not trustworthy, or I should say if your internet connection is less trustworthy than Tor, then obviously you can use Tor to upgrade. Um, the other reason is, um, you know, to try and just raise the bar a bit for snooping by national governments and other people who are doing bulk intercepts on the wire. It's not completely clear to me how successful Tor can be at that when used with Bitcoin um, because of the, the details of how, how it works. But, um, you know, it can't really make things easier. It can only really make them harder. So that's another reason to do it. Now, you mentioned in, the, in this talk, so the talk I was uh, referring to earlier was the one you did at Coin Scrum um, earlier this year. Um, so you, you mentioned that there are some other issues uh, with using Tor, which is that the peers that you connect to are now hidden, or at least their IP addresses are hidden. So there's a problem of trust uh, of the peers that you're actually connecting to and, and, and sending transactions to uh, from your wallet. And so you mentioned some some way, possible ways of uh, of solving this. So there's uh, a proof of sacrifice, which is essentially uh, uh, miners only trusting nodes that would sacrifice a small amount of Bitcoin. So it would make it expensive for someone to run a large amount of nodes. And also this other kind of a, really that 
this thing that I had never really heard about, which is a proof of passport, which is to prove that uh, you're in fact a, a real person because you have a passport. Um, now, can you kind of go into detail about how this would work? Because, uh, I mean, not all passports have an... Of course, this is a proposal. I mean, I understand it's, it's something that you propose in theory. Uh, if all pass, if everybody had a passport or if all passports had NFC chips in them. Um, can you just kind of talk about how this would work and uh, how you can verify that somebody has a passport? Uh, yeah, sure. So actually, just let me let me just correct something you said a bit earlier. Um, the way that we've implemented Tor in Bitcoin J currently, uh, that's not a risk actually, because we're not connecting to Tor hidden services. We're connecting to Bitcoin nodes on the regular internet through Tor. So just like you would if you browsed a website through Tor. Um, the, okay, so the Bitcoin nodes themselves are not. Right, so the, right, so the Bitcoin okay. nodes themselves are not hidden services. So you can still pick a collection of IP addresses. And as long as you trust that, you know, your, your, um, your internet connection is not being interfered with. Uh, well, no, let me rephrase that. Without Tor, you know, you assume that if you connect to 10 IP addresses chosen randomly from a set of eight, 9,000, you've probably got like 10 nodes that are not collaborating against you, right? Um, if there's someone sitting on your internet connection and giving you a false view of the internet, then, then maybe that assumption is violated. Uh, now, you know, if you connect to hidden services with Tor, you don't even have that, you know, um, that issue of the uh, the IP addresses and you know most Bitcoin nodes are not run on Tor either, so you, you'd have a much smaller set, which is why we don't do it. So I'm not worried about this risk for the way we're using Bitcoin J and Tor together today. This is really future thinking. Now the proof of passport thing is um, it's it's highly theoretical, as you say, partly because the software needed to do it is not available. In fact, it doesn't even exist yet, right? So this is this is theory. Um, based on academic literature. It's not, it's not something you could implement or I could implement today. It's just an idea of the future based on recent science. So it's still science fiction effectively, but just quite close to not being. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so like you said, you know, there are other issues. Not everyone has a passport. Uh, not everyone has an NFC passport. The point of this is really to solve the underlying problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve, which is how do you obtain consensus amongst a group of people on the internet? And this is this turns out to be really hard because online there's no strict definition of what a person is, right? Like you can sign up for multiple email accounts, you can have multiple devices, you can have multiple IP addresses. Um, you know, there's nothing really that ties these things together. So creating fake identities is really easy. And mining is, a, is an attempt to solve that by saying, one CPU, one vote. Um, each person has a computer with a CPU in it. Of course, we saw how badly this works. Right? The original idea of mining was that you know everyone would mine. Actually, that's why it was integrated into the, the, the original Bitcoin software. You could click a button in the GUI and you would mine. And, and proof of work has failed uh, in that sense because in reality, what we have now is a handful of pools, and the entire system boils down to votes by like five to ten people. So, so Bitcoin mining is an attempt to solve this problem and it, so far it hasn't been working. Maybe it's fixable, but so far it wasn't working. Uh, proof of passport takes a really direct approach. It says, you know, if you look at the details on your passport, you know, everyone has a name and birth date and, and some kind of other attributes that, you know, they will collide occasionally, but we can claim this is your identity and you have only one of them. And then if you could somehow digest this into some kind of anonymous 
cryptographic credential, you would only be able to have one of them. And then you could use it for things like voting and, and you could actually get 10 of these votes and know they came from 10 different people, or at least 10 different passports. Um, and the, the underlying maths that makes this possible, this is a very unintuitive concept. So when I first explained it, uh, I got a lot of feedback saying, why do you want to make everyone reveal their passport to take part in Bitcoin? And I was like, no, 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 that's not how it works. Right? We're talking about zero knowledge proofs. So you don't reveal your passport data. You reveal some um, derivative, mathematical derivative of it that's actually a solution to a set of very complicated equations. And these equations prove that you are a unique individual with some cryptographic identifier, some big number, which is your number. And you only have one of those numbers, but it's still an opaque number, right? You, you, you can't see through that number to figure out who really owns it behind the scenes. So, um, you know, in theory, you wouldn't even need mining or the blockchain in some ways if you could build such a system because you could go back to this world that Satoshi wanted, actually, which was one, one person, one vote, effectively, but he lacked the technology to do it. And that, that's what the proof of passport idea is all about. The reason, by the way, you, you hadn't heard about it before is I invented it for the purpose of that talk. You, you mentioned some, some, uh, some interesting research that uh, allowed this proof of passport to exist, which was ZK Snacks. Snacks, uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah. some, some really long and complex acronym. Um, uh, but I just thought it was very interesting because, I mean, like you said, I mean, this unlocks the potential for other applications yes. as well, you know, like voting or, or things like that. You know, not, not identity verification, but... Um, I mean, uh, the, the proof of being mm. one person and not being yeah. multiple per people. Now, what about in the event that you have two passports? Like if you have a dual citizenship, for instance? Yeah. Well, that's up to the designers of the system, how they handle that, right? Like if you're a dual citizen, you, you, you can select. Um, so the interesting thing about these zero knowledge proofs is you decide what data to expose from the passport. So the, what the proof does is it proves that the passport data was valid. And then it allows you to selectively reveal some of that data or none of it or a derivative of it, like a hash of that data. So for example, you could say, I'm not going to include the issuing country in the output. And then it wouldn't matter if you had two passports, if the names and the birth dates and other things were the same. Now, in, in reality, of course, names collide, birthdays collide, right? So you can get passports, which are for two different people, but they have the same details inside. You can also have the photo, of course, but photos change. So these things, none of these things are perfect, right? You've yeah, always, I mean, passport you've got numbers don't collide, yeah, yeah, so uh, it depends. Um, passport numbers are not supposed to collide, but I mean, this is a huge system, right? And it, it, it's certainly not perfect, right? You get forged passports, you get fake passports. The digital signatures, theory, are not forgeable, right? But I'm sure there are some governments that don't take care of their keys properly and so on. Now, it's not a perfect approximation of a person by any means. Some people would be able to get two or three identities. Some people, you know, would be able to steal passports and, and generate a stream of identities from them. Uh, you know, if you could convince people to give up your passports, other people would sell their passports, right? They, they wouldn't care about your, your weird cryptocurrency, or whatever. Like they would just say, Hey, if I could get 10 bucks and show this guy my passport and let him scan it with his phone, why would I not do that? So it's free money for me and I don't care what my identity is used for. So there are all kinds of interesting questions raised by this. And if someone were to try it, it would be an experiment to aside Bitcoin. It's like you don't know if it would work or not. It might be like mining. It might end up not working because people would just, too many people would sell their vote, for example. Um, 
But yeah, you're right. It allows. It's not only about voting in cryptocurrency, but you know, you could use this. For example, if you expose all of it, or your name and your photo, then you can solve the problem of uh, encrypting of encrypted email. Like if you think about PGP, it really sucks and no one really uses it. And the main reason no one really uses it is because uh, getting people's keys and verifying you actually got the correct key is really really hard. Um, the PKI tries to solve this by you know having companies which verify people's identities and, and issue certificates, and that's almost like a proof of passport. You know, maybe sometimes you have to submit ID verification to get your key, um, but it's kind of inconvenient and it relies on these trusted third parties who you know they can be corrupted and so on. So. Um, you know, if you could just create your own uh, certificate that people could trust, then, you know, you could just watch a video of me talking on YouTube and then go look me up in some directory of keys and you could see the key that I created associated with my passport and you could have a very strong assurance that it really is me, right? That it's not just an impersonator. So it, it can be solve all kinds of problems. I think, I mean, I've been thinking about this whole idea of like, how do you verify somebody is a person and somebody is unique for a while? And I think there is an, a tremendous amount of applications for that. And uh, one that I find the most fascinating is, uh, you know, remember something sort of similar was done, or I, I actually don't know to what extent it was done, but at least they announced they would do it, which was a Aurora coin in Iceland where they wanted to give, you know, a certain amount of their currency to every uh, person. Now, I think what would be really fascinating is if you did something like a global basic income that, you know, you monthly, you give like, let's say a thousand of your world coins to every person in the world. And, you know, it, it, there's no, it doesn't have to be any uh, approval by any government. It doesn't have to be legal tender anywhere. It will just establish its value yeah. Uh, in in the free market, you know, some people will like it, some people will ignore it. I think that would be extremely interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, a, a lot of what we do in computing and cryptography and so on is working around this fact that identity on the internet is so uh, it's not ideal for what we want. You know, sometimes it's not private enough, and sometimes it's too private. And if you think about even very basic things like spam filtering, you know, why why does so many people use Gmail? I used to work on Gmail. It's a great product. I'm very proud of what we accomplished. But, you know, we've got to be blunt, right? A big part of the reason that Gmail is the biggest email network on the planet is because it's got the best spam filter. Um, and people don't want to run their own spam filters because it's so hard. And why is spam filtering hard? Well, because you can't really ban anyone from sending you email, right? Because IP addresses can be stolen through botnets and all kinds of things. There's no real way of stopping someone from sending you money, if, uh, sending, sending you email if they are really determined. But, you know, with such a system, in theory, if we had had this right from day one, you know, maybe uh, anyone could have a really excellent spam filter and, uh, and people would not be centralizing around the hands of big email networks. As Jeff Jarvis puts it, email is broken because it's uh, sender controlled. Yeah, right. Well, email is broken because, you know, it, didn't, it doesn't have any uh, real way of banning people who abuse it and it's free. So you get a lot of abuse. It's dominated by abuse. Now, just going back to Bitcoin J, we talked to Wendell Davis a, a few weeks ago about uh, about Hive, and so mm -hmm. Hive uses Bitcoin, Bitcoin J. Uh, so when, when I installed Hive, uh, I was surprised to find out that I had to install Java in order to work, and later found out that it, it, was, it was using Bitcoin J in the background, mm -hmm. although the app is developed in Cocoa. Um, 
Now, do you have any plans or are there any ways to port Bitcoin J to another language uh, that maybe may be less uh, resource intensive or like work better in a native platform? Um, well, I, I hope that all you have to do is press a button to install Java. Right? Like it's, it's a bit annoying that you have to do this, but it's actually Apple have made it pretty easy. Um, what we're working on is bundling um, bundling a stripped down version of Java into Hive, or I've been, I've been looking at that. It's, it's one of these million things on my plate, right? so it makes a little bit of slow progress. The Hive guys want me to do that. Um, and then, you know, you wouldn't see this, this pop-up message the first time you use it. Um, in terms of resource usage, I mean, we haven't encountered any problems with that. Right? Bear in mind, Bitcoin J was written to work on old Android smartphones, back when Gingerbread was the most common. And the most you're going to get there is like 16 or 32 megs of RAM. So by the standards of modern apps, you know, the fact the whole thing connects to the peer-to-peer network, it downloads a blockchain, it runs a wallet all in, you know, it can actually do that in 16 megs of RAM is, is not that bad. <laughs> We're going back to like the mid-90s, uh, the last time computers had that much memory. So I'm not worried about that as a language. Um, the way language design is going as a trend is that people who design new languages by and large, they don't design native languages anymore. And the reason is that um, you don't get access to any good libraries if you do that. Uh, you can only use libraries written in C, effectively. Um, Apple are kind of breaking that trend a little bit with Swift because they have this big legacy of Objective-C stuff and they want to like evolve that platform. Um, but you know, like you can't easily use Objective-C libraries from um, from Python, for example, you would need a lot of complicated binding to do that. So what new languages tend to be developed on is either .NET or the JVM, because that way they can do, they can try out all kinds of new ideas in language design, uh, but still have access to all of those great libraries, because the type system is a lot more well-defined. So Bitcoin J, there are people using it from Lisp, from Scala, from uh, JavaScript, from Python even, and they're, they're doing that through um, the JVM. I would love to expand it out more to cover even more languages. It's not going to be rewritten anytime soon. It's, it's a big code base by now, but we can do things like automatically transpiling it to C++ and stuff like that. So I, I think most people should not be building wallets in C++ because it's too risky. But if you know if people wanted to do that, then it would be possible. Cool. Well, um, I think we're kind of at the end of the show. Uh, is, if, there are, if people want to learn more about uh, your projects, so uh, is, you can sign up, I think, for your blog updates. Is that right? Yeah, if you go to vinumerous.com, there's an email list and there's a blog as well. Um, so if you're interested, you can just sign up there. It's very low. I haven't even sent any emails yet, so it's very low traffic. Talking about spam and things, you know, I'm not intending on sending lots of updates, but you can sign up there. Yeah, but I guess once uh, Lighthouse is out or perhaps if the talk, I, I would love to see the talk you gave uh, at the Amsterdam conference. So if, if those are out, perhaps you, you'll send an yes, email. Yes. Or when the video is available, I will email that out. Sure. Okay, perfect. Do you have any idea of when that video is coming out? Is it, are you waiting for Bitcoin I, Foundation to put out? Yes, yes. I don't know what the delay is. Okay. I, I think they haven't put out anything except maybe the keynote. No, they, they so. put out a few talks, I think. Okay. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we're still waiting for it. I want to watch it. Now, when's Lighthouse uh, coming out? Do you have any idea of when we'll see a first beta? Well, to some extent, it's done when it's done. But I'm aiming, um, I'm, you know, I want to push myself to try and get a, some kind of beta out by the end of July. Uh, we'll see how that goes. The initial versions will almost certainly be locked down or crippled in some way um, or proprietary. You know, they, they won't be open source because I want to raise the money to release Lighthouse with Lighthouse. 
So by definition, it can't be given away. Can't be given away for free, right? So um, the first version maybe it will only manage, it will only be usable with projects that come from me, for example. But I'm still figuring out the exact details of how to raise the money for Lighthouse itself. And are you looking for any open source developers to join you on this project? Or um, you know, right now, uh, what's happened in recent months is a Bitcoin J has really taken off, and we've been getting a ton of new contributors, a ton of big major feature upgrades going in there. Like one guy now is working on multi-sig wallets. Uh, so, you know, you can have a, a third-party risk analysis provider with your multi-sig wallet. And if you want to help out, um, you know, you, right now Lighthouse is not open source, right? I will have to wait to raise the money before it is. But if you want to help out on these kind of ideas, then working on Bitcoin J is, is a very easy and, and very uh, straightforward way to do that. Okay, great. And uh, that's, I guess, on GitHub. You just go github.com slash uh, Bitcoin J. Yeah, you, you can go to bitcoinj.org and that's our website. And yes, the code is on, is on GitHub. And there's a, there's a mailing list. It's friendly. It's got a lot of people on it. You know, if you're looking for work, you can just ask them and people will give you ideas for what to do. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It was really uh, lots of fun to talk to you and extremely interesting to hear both about Lighthouse, about uh, you know the fees and sort of the future of uh, Bitcoin J and Bitcoin development. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Um, so uh, a few things. If uh, as we come kind of to the end of our show, if you want to support Epicenter Bitcoin, you know you can leave tips. It's epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at EpicenterBTC. Uh, and if you like the show, if you want to leave some feedback, if you feel like we could do something better, you can also leave a review on iTunes, which also helps new people find the show. And uh, finally, every Friday, uh, I send out a newsletter. It kind of goes out through, uh, goes through, you know, the most most important news and developments, some links to blog posts. So you can sign up for that at EpicenterBitcoin.com/newsletter. So uh, thanks so much for listening and uh, we'll be back next week. See you. Bye-bye.